Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. It's uh, nice to be here in this room together. I just want to uh, remind you that um, this is the building we're moving into, but it's official next week. So next week we'll be moving into our new space, which is upstairs from here. (coughs) And to get into that space, you'll go through um, the front door, I think. Pat, that's probably right. Uh, next week. I'll find out. I yeah. think so. Yeah, makes sense. Unless you want to cut a hole in the fence. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, we'll be in the room somehow. And um, I also just wanted to say something about these talks. You know, when, when I'm speaking, I really encourage you to to keep the meditation practice going as I'm talking. So that as you're inhaling, you can inhale the talk. Um, Not to be listening in a way where you need to remember sentences or certain points. Uh, If they stick with you, they stick with you, and if they don't, they don't. It's fine to take notes, but I really encourage you to, to sort of listen with your whole body. Um... And also, you know, just being in this space, how lucky we are that we have a space. Walls and a roof, and, and we get to do this. It, it, it always breaks my heart when I travel and I hear people from other cities talking about... Actually, someone coined it. It's called Sangha Envy. Um, when uh, people here aren't using the resources, the practice resources of our city. We, we have so many great centers where you can practice. And um, uh, when you don't come and practice, especially when things get busy, uh, most people nowadays, as September is uh, finishing, are so busy. And we have so many resources in the city for you to take care of yourself. And it's really important that you do. Uh, it's good for you, and it's good for the city. It's good for everybody on the streetcar with you, everyone on the sidewalk with you, everyone sharing the road and the subway. Um, it's really important that you, you come and practice. I came across a passage today uh, by Rollo May. I don't know how many of you know Rollo May, but... but um, 
my mentor when I was studying uh, psychology at U of T was a student of Rollo May. So uh, I have his quotes kind of scattered around, and I came across this one today. Um, it's an ironic habit that we humans have. We go faster when we've lost our way. We go faster when we've lost our way. Um, how many of us want to live simpler lives? If I actually asked you, don't put your hand up, because I don't really want to know, but if I asked you how many of you want your lives to be simpler, I think probably almost all of us would put up our, our hands. Um, and in a way, maybe coming and sitting still is the process of just sort of touching that foundation underneath all that busyness. And, and gather, uh, we call it attention and so on, but it's really you know, gathering values, c coming back to what we value. And um, one of the ways we, we've been doing this is through uh, sitting and also studying. Um, last winter and last spring, we studied a text called the Lotus Sutra, which most of you were, were there, which was the most fun I've ever had uh, uh, researching and preparing uh, to teach. Um, and now, basically, it all goes downhill as we go back to the Yoga Sutra. Uh, but we're actually studying Chapter 3 of the Yoga Sutra. This is Week 2. And Chapter 3 is the chapter that most people skip because it's called Supernatural Powers. And unless you've been seasoned by the Lotus Sutra, um, it may not be so appealing because we get turned off the title. But actually, chapter 3 has the most detailed and precise description of what happens in meditation practice than any text that I know. And um, some of the Sanskrit terms that are used, which are much more refined, I think, than English in talking about meditative states, um, are really phenomenal. So because of that, instead of just me talking, um, I, would, I would like it if you would follow along. So I photocopied 30 um, uh, copies of chapter 3. They're here, the Sanskrit-English transliteration. And if you want to be a bodhisattva for the week, you could take it home and you could photocopy two copies and then come back next week and give them out freely as your uh, bodhisattva practice, as your bhakti yoga uh, practice. And you can become, you know, Xerox Bodhisattva. <laughs> Actually, some rumors have been floating around that uh, some people in the Sangha have been naming each other uh, new names. So I was just told that Grant is no longer Grant. Now he is Bodhisattva Gentle Heights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, apparently Mike was renamed does anybody know what it is? it might have been Bodhisattva Crisp Attention oh yeah <laughs> Bodhisattva Crisp Attention Karina were you named? oh I don't know if it was real <laughs> what was the name? does anybody know? 
Tenzo queen. Tenzo queen. Okay. So, anyways, it's the best way to have a club is have inside jokes and name each other. Um, So, so what we talked about last week is uh, the practice of meditating in a way where there is immediacy, where there's no obstacle, no craving, and that our attention is connected to the field that. Uh, is being observed. And the way we've been studying the line so far, and that I promised, is every time we look at a line, we're also going to use a Zen koan to uh, open it up. So we're going to be into, we're going to be looking at Patanjali through the lens of China. Don't tell anyone we're doing this, or I'll have my certification taken away. Oh, I don't have a certification, so that's okay. So um, if you look at chapter 3, the sentence that we explored primarily last week was the first, which is uh, desha bandash chitasya dharana. So dharana, which means meditation, is the sixth limb of yoga. If you've studied ashtanga yoga or the eight limbs of yoga, the sixth limb is dharana, And what this means, Patanjali is suggesting, is that the chitta, so chitta is that part of your mind that is impressionable, kind of like clay. And the impressions are permanent and impermanent, in the sense that sometimes the impressions feel like they last a long time, but it's that part of our attention that's constantly being molded by what we're aware of. And so it's not exactly your mind, otherwise the word would be manas. The word is chitta, which usually is translated as consciousness. Sometimes I like to translate it as as your imagination. And so it's being able to banda, to bond your imagination or your attention span with a field. Usually that word's translated as object, but the word desha means a field. Um, So meditation happens when your attention is bonded to a field. The field can be uh, sensation, it can be the whole movement of the breath. Uh, But what happens is, as the attention becomes bonded with the field, the attention and the field become the same thing. So it doesn't feel like the attention is separate from the field. And, and when that happens, it's called meditation. Does this make sense? So it's not so much that you're, you're watching something necessarily. It's that you're, uh, you're aware of a whole field. So it's moving. Sometimes people think, you know, how do you meditate on a thought? Because the thought's moving. But if you understand that the thought is in a field, and it's a field of thought, it makes it a little bit easier to be able to just bring awareness to thinking. or Because whatever you become aware of, it's changing. And the you that's aware of it is changing. So, so the chitta, the awareness, is being bonded to the field. Does this make sense? And I hope this is what we covered uh, la- last week. And we use that nice uh, phrase by Dogen, uh, that uh, when you practice, the other shore is also practicing, and it comes to you.
Uh, tonight I want to look at the next sentence, which is the second sentence of the third chapter. Um, in meditative absorption, the entire perceptual flow is aligned with the object. Um, maybe that's not the most accurate translation. Uh, the word that's important to notice here is this term pratyaya, which is perception. And you can see here that there's a bit of trouble translating it. So it's been translated as perception, thought, intention, and most importantly, representation. Literally, a representation. So, in absorption, what's happening is that when there's awareness of the field, there's perception of the field, and even though you're becoming one with what you're aware of, you're doing it through your subjectivity. And that's why this is called not exactly chitta, but it's called pratyaya, which means perception, which means that the way you're looking at what you're looking at is influencing what you're looking at. Does this make sense? So there's, there, it's subjectivity. It's, it's the fact that even when you're one with the object, it's not objective. You're still filtering your experience. And, and, and perception in yoga psychology and in Buddhist psychology means the attention span is filtering what it's noticing. Does this make, make sense? It's, it's not kind of like you're experiencing the world purely. You're, you're experiencing the world still through the filter of your, your life. All your organs are doing this. Um, and eka, you're becoming one at the same time. But what's important is you're not merging, right? So you're becoming one. And, and the way I like to think about it is not just in terms of formal meditation, but when something is happening in your day and let's say boredom arises, that, that can, can I be one with that? Can I be one with, with this boredom? The field is boredom. Can I be one with this? Um, Dogen says, as we studied in the summertime, um, for the time being, boredom. He says, for the time being, uh, you can be on the top of the mountain, and for the time being, the bottom of the ocean. And this is a really helpful teaching. For the time being, I'm bored. And in my experience, I don't know if this is true for yours, there's no mood that really lasts more than five minutes. You, you can see if this is true for you. So for the time being, attentive. For the time being, joyful. I can be one with that. For the time being, traffic, for the time being, pain. And Patanjali calls this dhyana. And the word dhyan also means meditation. And when the Sanskrit term goes to China, that word becomes chan, which in Japan is where we get the term zen. So zen really means meditation. 
And it also means, can I be one with this? Can I really be one with, with this? Um, here's a little koan to, to kind of blow this out a little bit. Um, when Yaoshan was sitting in meditation, a monk asked, what do you think about when you're sitting in such quiet composure? Has anyone ever asked you this question after you've meditated? Hey, when you're meditating, what do you think about? So someone, this is kind of a, a really good question. When Yaoshan was sitting in meditation, the monk asked, what do you think about when you're sitting in such quiet composure? Yaoshan said, I think not thinking. The monk said, how do you think not thinking? Yaoshan said, non-thinking. Should we go through that again? When Yaoshan was sitting in meditation, a monk asked, what do you think about... <laughs> I told somebody on the phone yesterday, um, actually the person who translated this, uh, Yoga Sutra, I said, oh, we're studying the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra. He's like, oh, well, you better use some koans. It's really dry at the beginning. <laughs> so, when Yaoshan was sitting in meditation, a monk asked, what do you think about when you're sitting in such quiet composure? Yaoshan said, I think not thinking. The monk said, how do you think not thinking? And Yaoshan says, non-thinking. How do you think not thinking is to touch non-thinking? It doesn't mean to not think. It means to touch the realm of non-thinking. And some of us like to take the realm of non-thinking and make it narrow and put it above our head and think if we meditate, we can squeeze into this bardo, this, this womb of non-thinking somewhere. And that's like enlightenment or transcendence. But I think it's helpful to flip that around. The realm of non-thinking is bigger. And it's, it's sort of underneath us. Up here, we have this life that we think we live. The job I have, uh, my emotions, um, my relationships, all the things that we think of are our life. And underneath that life, there's a much, much bigger life happening. And that much, much deeper life is the realm of non-thinking. It's why we sit to come out of that small, determined, and narrow package of a life. And everything happens, it seems, in the realm of non-thinking. The sun comes up in the morning in the realm of non-thinking. Uh, squash are growing now in the realm of non-thinking. The fan is on in the realm of non-thinking. The acids in my stomach are churning in the realm of non-thinking. Saturday night, I was sound asleep, and suddenly I felt stinging in my hand, and I woke up, and I had been stung by a spider or a wasp. And I got up from bed, I put my hand under cold water, and I, I was really upset, so, and I went back to bed, and I was in bed, and I started sweating. And then I realized I was so angry. And I started being really angry 
that an, a wasp could get into my apartment. And then I started thinking about all the screens, and then I was mad at my landlord because one screen's a little bit loose. And then I realized I actually would never get angry about this. And I, a thought came to me that maybe whatever chemicals were moving th through me and the heat that was coming up and my liver and my kidneys were kind of bringing up anger. That instead of actually me analyzing, Michael, why are you angry now at the wasp? It's so stupid to realize, oh, there's something happening in the realm of non-thinking. It's a little bit like when you wake up in the morning and you've had a really profound dream. And you, you can't say exactly what the dream was about, but you know something's shifted or something's about to shift. And you can't, and if you try to analyze it, you don't kill the dream, you, you kill the realm of non-thinking. Because, because out, out of fear, really, of trying to grasp the non-thinking realm. We do it all the time. It's the same in meditation practice. If you have a kind of psychotherapeutic mind and you start having emotional patterns come up in the meditation practice, we tend to start trying to work out our emotional problems while we're meditating. And then we don't see that that's actually control. It's actually trying to, to take the non-thinking realm and control it. Too much technique sometimes. How do you think non-thinking? Non-thinking. And an interesting thing happens when you sit and you touch the realm of non-thinking is the first thing that happens is you, you get more images when you get underneath language. You get more images. And then a lot of people can get stuck there. So last week I, w I had a lot of interviews with students and, and one person came and said, I was meditating and I saw Kuan Yin. I saw her standing in, you know the way Kuan Yin stands? She's kind of like curved a little bit. I saw her standing and I became one with Kuan Yin. And they were really proud of this. And so I said, well, you should sit a little straighter then. <laughs> and you could see the attachment, you know, to, to this experience. I remember this on, on the New Year's retreat, somebody had the experience of... Uh, having this real visual of Krishna in the snow playing his flute. Same thing. So I said, don't worry, it'll go away. <laughs> so then if we can't hold on to language, then we hold on to images. And it seems the process is there's concepts, there's language, underneath language there's images, and underneath images is sensation. And it seems to kind of move through that process. I don't want to say that that's the way your brain operates, but it's something you can watch for, that, that when language starts to fade away, the images become very, very vivid, and it's easy to hold on to them because they seem important because it's not thinking. But it's... It's image thought. It's image mind. It's picture thought, if that makes any sense. 
Jacques Lacan said that the unconscious is structured by language, and, and Carl Jung disagreed. He always thought that the unconscious is structured by image. The Buddhists would say it's not structured. But you can watch this. When sensations arise, they turn into images. Some of us are better in one realm than the other in articulating our experience. Sometimes I think it's good if you take any psychologist who is a theorist like Jung or Freud or Lacan and you read their psychology as their biography. So what Lacan was really working through was language, maybe what Jung had to work through. Because Lacan was very neurotic. And Jung had the tendency to be more psychotic, much more image-based. Image Pat, did you have your hand up? I have a couple of questions. Um, do you think that you might is also view? The experience uh, is filtered through view, and that's, this, that's the doctor's view? Sure. Yeah. You could. It's a little more technical than view. Yes. Because view is still more having a position. Right. And pratyaya, it's not really that you're having a position. It's just unconsciously there's an acknowledgement that you're still filtering your experience. And part of this, you could say, is arguing. At the time, was the Yogacara school uh, that Patanjali was competing with that had this idea that everything is in your mind, and if you can get out of your mind, you can see things objectively. But Patanjali's arguing for the value of subjectivity. You can't get out of your experience. And the other question is when, I think you may have already answered it, though, that touching the realm of non-thinking um, brings us, it's more the direct experience, as close as we can get to the direct experience and sensation. We can be with sensation. It's a little closer. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And at the same time, to be with sensation. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing about pratyaya. I don't. I, I don't know if this is coming across, but so the thing about pratyaya is that you're one with the experience, but you're not merging with it. I think we all know this in relationship, right? How do you have intimacy with another person without merging with them? When we're young, all we want to do is merge, you know? And I, I always joke that it's good to have a codependent relationship for six or seven years before you're 40. Um, I hope everyone's working on that. And, and that way, you can then begin to cultivate intimacy. The ability to have the experience of being one with somebody where you're there for them and they can count on you and you have needs and they have needs that are separate. But it's exactly the same with pain. When we say become one with pain, it doesn't mean you know fall into the pain, lose yourself completely. Although sometimes we do, want it, we do say that. There is a time for that. Uh, but how to have the right proximity to what the field is um, that you forget about yourself, but you don't merge. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is, it, is the perspective that merging is impossible or that just merging doesn't happen at this point? Or is your perspective? Uh-huh. 
I think to answer that would be to give you a position. Merging is impossible. Okay. <laughs> merging is what we want. It's just, um, there is a time to merge. Now's not the time. <laughs> but there might be a time to merge. Like when you're driving, you don't want to merge all the time. <laughs> um, one thing I also want to do is just take it out of the realm of meditation. Also, There are so many times in the day where you bow. On Tuesday night, we practice here, and we don't use much form at all. Well, we ring a bell, right? We do a little bit of bowing, but not much. We sit our cushions up in any way. But on Thursdays and on Sundays when we practice, and when the precepts group practices, and when the mentorship group practices, we're very formal. And one thing we give a lot of attention to is how to light incense and how to bow. Um, so that you're not bowing from the outside of your body. But you're, you're bowing from inside. And there are so many times of the day where you can bow, where you don't even realize it. You're leaning over the kitchen sink. You're leaning over the diapers. And, and, and you're bowing. And in the bow, you're, you're giving yourself. This also is becoming one with that moment. How can you find this samadhi? In every moment, that's what counts. We don't want to ratchet up meditation practice as the only place you do this. You want to do this consistently in your life. When you undo your bicycle lock, you have to bow to get to the lock, your key to the lock. This is a valid place to have some formal practice. So I encourage you to really apprentice yourself to bowing to apprentice yourself to breathing, to apprentice yourself to walking, so that all of these things you do in the day are also being one with the field. Yes, Petra. Would, would that, to me, that sounds like mercy. What you're saying is that that aspect of meditation with your day-to-day -day life is like, that would be a mercy. Is that a merging? Type of merging? It can be. So if, if you think of that as merging, then you should do merging. Yeah. But you don't want to lose yourself. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Patanjali might be going further by saying, and you actually can't mm -hmm. lose yourself. The psychiatrists in the room might disagree, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if um, losing yourself might be um, falling into a projection, like that when when you're with something, yeah, and you have your subjectivity, uh huh, but and you're with that, not with anything else in the perceptual field, yeah. But if if there's merging, there's some kind of uh, uh, dissolving happening of that subjectivity. Yes. 
which I'm, I'm, sounds like a kind of image getting in there or something. You know? Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that actually in the merging, there is a creation of a new kind of image where you've lost yourself, but you've lost yourself to like a new version of yourself. And that version is is a pseudo oneness. Is that what you, is yeah. that? Yeah. Can you give an example? Well, I guess I'm thinking a bit of psychosis. Psychosis, yeah. We were talking about Jung earlier, and, and, and Jung had this really interesting idea of how schizophrenia happens. Um, it, it was a really interesting, and this was at the end of his life, he had this really interesting theory that what happens in schizophrenia is that there are parts of our personality that we compartmentalize. We all know this, right? Um, in psychoanalysis, it's called splitting, right? So he had this idea that maybe when the personality splits off parts of itself, that if it's the split is so strong, there's a kind of shattering of the personality, and then those parts that split get their own ego. Right? And those egos are just as strong as the other egos. So that there's actually multiple personalities. And this caused the DSM to take out multiple personality from its encyclopedia. Apparently this year they're putting it back in. But because there was this idea that we all have multiple personalities. But what happens in schizophrenia or in psychosis is that that piece that was split off has its own ego. Or like you're saying, Simone, it, it has its own subjectivity, but it can't get related back to a central command because the central command is kind of split. This was Jung's idea. Um, and his idea for how to heal that was that if you give the ego that split enough space and attention and relationship, it will just turn into a healthier ego. That you can actually pick the ego that is psychotic and get that to be grounded by putting it in relationship. Does this make sense? Did, did we lose anybody here? Or? No? <coughs> sort of? So, so I think that might connect to what you're saying, Simone, in the, in the sense that maybe merging is not losing yourself, but actually the experience of, of a kind of new version of yourself or you haven't really um, worked on the lessening of craving to the image yeah. Phew. okay does anybody have a more difficult question <laughs> we should have answered that just by saying non-thinking <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Um, but, but to tie this back to last week, you know, last week I introduced the, the section telling you the story of um, the Buddha's robes and how um, the Buddha wanted his monks to use robes that, from material that was discarded. It had been in contact with animals or paint or uh, uh, menses or vari- various kind of um, unacceptable um, robes. And that the, the process for the Buddha was those things that are discarded, that's holy. That's the robe you wear. You make your robes out of what's discarded. And um, for anybody who's been to India, it doesn't stop there. Then when monks are finished with their robes, the robes can be used for cleaning. Eventually, when they're really tattered, they are used and they're mixed with mortar. And they're used uh, uh, um, uh, to... They're kind of used like rebar, actually, um, in concrete. So... um, in the same way, I think this is a great metaphor. This idea of, you know, what is most holy? What are the robes? What is the case of that you wear? It is um, what's discarded. And in a way, this is what we're talking about when we talk about meditation. We're talking about having the field of attention, because the field is not separate from attention. The field is as wide as the attention is wide. And we're having the attention so wide that anything in the field um, can be integrated, even what's discarded. I remember when um, I, I, I went through a really painful separation a few years ago, and um, I called my editor and I said, who had been married three times, and I said, you know, I'm going through this separation, it's really awful, and I, I just can't hand in the manuscript uh, in the next couple months. And she said, oh, you're going through separation, isn't, the, isn't it the best time of your life? <laughs> <laughs> and something was so true about that, that in the realm of thinking, it's so painful Why is it painful? Because it's change. And none of us like change, you know. That's what's the most painful about separation or losing someone is the change. But in the realm of non-thinking, it was the best time of my life. I would never have said it then. But I I got what she said about three years later, which is now. Uh, I want to read a poem from Jane Hirschfield. Not a day goes by that someone doesn't send me a Jane Hirschfield poem this week. This is called A Cedary Fragrance. Actually, uh, when I was in Montreal in the spring, I heard Jane uh, 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 read this poem um, during the Montreal Zen Poetry Festival. And uh, beforehand, she told the story that this poem came after she was traveling in a place where there was no hot water. And so whenever she had to wash her face, she used cold water. And so when she moved back to California, um, whenever she washed her face, she only washed with cold water to keep this, this ritual up. So this poem is from that time. 
Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water, not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. I love this last line. To practice choosing, making the unwanted wanted. We always hear in practice, practice not choosing. But here she's, she's intentionally practicing making the unwanted wanted. Is there something in your week coming up that you imagine you're going to not want, that you're going to have to go through? How can you want that? If there's some repositioning of your attitude possible, some realignment, or some non-thinking that you can bring to that, it makes the whole difference. And then you can be one with that. So the, the attention and the field are one. And they're different. And to know the difference makes all the difference. It's not that they're one, but it's not that they're different. And the practice is to know that difference. Okay, so that's sentence number two. That's about as fast as we're going to be moving (laughs) through this this text. Um, There is a second part to the talk tonight, which I want to get into. Um, But I thought that maybe before I do that, we could just kind of pause and stand up and maybe stretch. And we'll continue for about five more minutes. (laughs) 